I'm Ricky. And I'm Joe, and this is Beer and Broadband, Season 5, Episode 12 of the Beer and Broadband Podcast. As I screw that all up, but we're just going to keep rolling with it. It is slated to come out on October 10th, 2022. And today we're going to be talking about brewing for the most part. But uh, we, uh, we made some meads. I made some meads, I should say. Ricky helps sometimes. Uh, so we made a uh, buckwheat boche, which we're not going to try on this. We've already tried it in the past. I think most of the people that listen to this podcast know about the saga of the buckwheat boche, but I'm talking about the stinky one, not the coffee one. So um, then I also made a candy corn mead that was based off of man-made meads recipe, which um, I I thought was a lot of fun to make with. It basically, you just melt down candy corn and then add honey to it. Uh, which is candy corn is already a honeyed candy anyway, so it has like some of those like kind of flavors and stuff like that that I back sweeten it. And then I made a blueberry hibiscus melomel. Now, not to get too far into this, but both the candy corn mead and the blueberry hibiscus melomel are 17% meads. I didn't intend for them to come out 17% meads, but they came out 17% meads, and they're both super clear. Uh, the blueberry melomel looks like brandy or something like that. Like, uh, mm-hmm. Ricky was talking about, I'm definitely making it again. I made three gallons. I've almost drank it all. I have like two, uh, wine glass, uh, wine bottles left. And then this tasting bottle and then the candy corn mead, um, it, I have just a gallon of it cause I didn't know if I'd like to make it again, but I thought it would be like a fun fall like kind of thing. And since this is coming out around Halloween, it's also kind of a Halloweeny candy. Mm-hmm. So, um, while I drink you, uh, yeah. Talk. So the blueberry hibiscus, very, very good. Like I said, it's got great color, great smell. It's a little sweet, but not too sweet. There's a little bit of that floral and there's not even like a strong berry flavor. It's almost like the essence of blueberries. Yeah. You know, and we've talked in the past about how it's kind of hard to get berry flavors like directly, like really forward because, you know, that's, mm-hmm. that's the sugar profile. It's really good, though. Like where most like means or most ciders that I make, I will like drink by the glass. You know, I drink them more like I drew like drink a beer. Yeah. This is very much in that like wine area. Yeah. Of, like I want like a two ounce pour of this that I'm going to sip on for like an hour. Yeah. Very, very smooth. Very nice. Yeah. I'm I'm not sure I'm ready to call it my favorite thing you've made, but it's definitely up there. It is in the consideration. Um, yeah, very nice. The candy corn one for me though, it's a, it's good. Like it's brewed well. It's very smooth for its ABV, but it's just like a sweeter and thicker plain meat. Yeah, like it's got this viscosity to it. It's almost like it's sticky. It's got a lot of sugar to it, at least in like in the flavor profile. I'm not sure I'd want like multiple bottles of just that, but I think it would make a really good base for like launching off into like some sort of fall meat or something like that. Yeah, I, I agree. I can taste because I know like what it was, what it kind of should taste like as like just the base mead by mm-hmm. itself because these were both made with wildflower mead. Um, I know what it should taste like if it was just made to be a traditional mead. Yeah. I can taste the difference, mm-hmm. but it is so subtle. And the the candy corn, so one of the problems with this was I burned a little bit of the candy corn on the bottom, and I thought that would come through the flavor, and it didn't. 
Like you can't tell the, yeah. the, the a little bit of the candy corn got burned on the bottom of the pot. But the the candy corn itself imparts this almost like kind of artificial flavor to it. If if you're if you know what you're looking for, yeah, it's a just like bit. a little hint in the very end, mm-hmm. um, and it's it's a it's an artificial kind of honey flavor, right? Otherwise, it doesn't really. I think I could make instead of making it with candy corn, I could take the flavors, the honey, the vanilla, the things that you're supposed to have in candy corn, mm-hmm. put them into this, and then. Put or put them into a mead, and then would have a candy corn mead that tasted like candy corn more than. Yeah, you probably could. I'll say what I actually like the most about it is the viscosity. Yeah. The only other mead I've had that's like more viscous than this was one we had when we went out to California, but it was just so sweet. Yeah. Like it was past dessert level to get all that sugar coming to make it so thick. And I don't know if maybe it's something in the candy corn, whatever thickening agent they use. Mm-hmm that does this to it but that's that's nice that's why i'm thinking like this as a base and then you put some other fall flavors into this but it'll still have that viscosity that like stick to your tongue feeling like maybe some cinnamon and some clove and some things like that and then maybe like uh, i was thinking this that would actually be a really good base for some of the stuff you do with the pumpkin meats yeah you know you put pumpkin in there and this is this will get that closer to that like pumpkin pie flavor because it's got that like almost gooeyness you get from that pumpkin. Well, I'm thinking about making another pumpkin mead. We could get a bag of um, like another two gallon thing mm-hmm. of pumpkin mead. We could get another bag of candy corn and yeah, do it for the I same mean, process. In all honesty, it might be a good addition. Okay, we we can try that. I'm totally down with that. I'm I'm not. I, I was thinking of doing something similar, just like mm-hmm. from a different kind of direction. So, yeah, I want to definitely make the um, pumpkin meat sweeter this time because I'm not going to talk. I'm not going to do it on the podcast, but both pumpkin beans that I've made, I've let go dry and it kind of needs that sweetness. And I, we had some itself and it just did not taste like pumpkin pie. Yeah, It tasted like a pumpkin beverage, mm. but it wasn't like pumpkin pie. And yeah. it's the spice is kind of not there anymore. I'm going to do a tincture and some other things and try to get that pumpkin flavor into it. And then, you know, go. so I'm going to go buy a pumpkin and I'm going to buy a big liter of, of, um, buy, buy a thing of, uh, vodka. And then we'll make a couple of tinctures of pumpkin with spices in it and see if I can, I'm going to make two, two, two gallon batches one that's just made like a traditional one that's just sweet mm-hmm. more, and one that's made with tinctures, and see which one works out better. I gotcha. Yeah. So you yeah. you want to do something similar to what I did with those raspberries, and that you're gonna yeah. get those like slices of pumpkin, Put get it really in there. Yeah. yeah, yeah, I can see that. And then use that because otherwise the pumpkin will be too vegetal. But then yeah, use that can, to be able to. I know. can really see that because you know those. I know you haven't had any yet, but the the raspberries that came out were really good because. It wasn't overly powerful. You had that real good, like, essence of raspberry to it. But it wasn't too sweet. It didn't, like, lower the ABV too much. So, like, even the, you know, we, we've been using it in mixed drinks. And we've said, look, some of these mixed drinks we're making, they're, like, they're good. But, like, this is such, like, a subtle flavor that, like, you know, we put some in Coke to try to make, like, a raspberry yeah. Coke. And the sweetness just covers it up. So, we've been putting in, like, ginger ale. They've been great. So, yeah, I can definitely see that, you know, trying to get some concentrated level of pumpkin. One of the things, maybe I'll try this because I don't want to waste your pumpkin stuff because we've got a little bit too much of the raspberry. 
I was thinking, like, what does a raspberry tincture really taste like if you try and concentrate it? Like, let me take, like, a cup of my raspberry vodka, heat it up a little bit, you know, reduce it to half. How does that change the flavor? Yeah. You that, know, like, that can I be... concentrate that raspberry and make it, like, a, a, like a, a super raspberry extract? Sort of, I think you would have to add something to the vodka, though, to get it to reduce like that. See, I don't know, because, like, your vodka is 40% alcohol. So, like, that'll just freely evaporate. So, essentially, you, I would end up with some sort of raspberry liquid that is no longer alcoholic, but is 40% lower in volume. I, I understand that, but what I'm saying is I think a lot of the flavor would get stripped out, so you need something to kind of hold on to it. So, like, you would have to add, like, a, a like make it a simple syrup or something like that. Maybe. Yeah, that, that's kind of what I was getting at. I don't know, like... The obviously the ethanol will evaporate, but will whatever else is imparting that raspberry flavor evaporate? I'm I, not sure what that, that I chemical think it, compound I th- is. I think there's a there's a high possibility that it will strip some of that out. Okay. Look, hey, my kid's not home this weekend. Maybe I'll try. Yeah, we'll you see, should. <laughs> just see what happens. Take maybe only like half a cup and just get it down to a fourth a cup and see what that tastes like. Now, I'm trying to find where I made the buckwheat honey on my thing in here, the the different buckwheat honeys, and I know it's on here. Ah, buckwheat boche. I just want to see. So that one ended up being 14%, mm-hmm. uh, right at 15%. So the reason we're not tasting that one on here is it's not a bad mead. It, uh, we took it to self. People liked it and everything like that. But it has like a aftertaste, like mm-hmm. a funk. And that is the same smell and taste that you got when you buck bocheted it. It was the same smell and taste that was there when I ate it. And I've had other buckwheat honey that didn't have that. So there was something about the pollens or mm-hmm. other things that were in the unfiltered buckwheat honey that made it so pungent. Yeah. <laughs> And, you know, I don't think, like, plant varieties are protected. So that could be part of it as well. So, like, there's a bunch of different type of oranges. Right. You don't have to specify it's navel orange, you know, honey. So maybe just, like, different breeds of buckwheat have different flavors and just that one wasn't working. Maybe, but, I I mean, the... This was clearly something like I bought it off Etsy and someone was like mm-hmm. went and like got the honey out of somewhere. And I wonder if it like, like they had like a cow field or something. It almost has like that kind of like, yeah. you know, I, I didn't want to say that. Smell. That's kind of the same thing I was yeah, thinking. Like, like, is this just a farm that has buckwheat and just maybe, you know, whatever they're fertilizing with or something like that just makes it into the overall flavor. Yeah, exactly. And so I growing up on a farm, I know that that smell comes from animals Mm -hmm. doing their stuff. It's not just like pee and poo, but there's like, that's just like the hay and the, the other stuff like kind of contributes to that. So if they were recycling that into some sort of fertilizer, that could have like had a serious impact on the flavor of the honey. Yeah. Uh, Which is kind of what it seems like. Um, So I'm probably not going to get that again. I want to revisit buckwheat honey. Um, there's a different source of honey. Yeah, just get a different source of it. And one of the other reasons we're not drinking it on this is I want to let what I've got left age for like two years. Yeah. Uh, and just see kind of what happens with it. Because the 
the the see three months since we had it last it's turned more like a cola flavor okay but it still has that that kind of aftertaste to it which i don't mm. particularly enjoy but i had a bottle uh two weeks ago and it tasted like cherry coke oh really okay. yeah yeah so i'm i'm kind of in the buck like i'm i appreciate buckwheat honey I am not looking for that same flavor profile from that particular buckwheat honey. Gotcha. We yeah, made yeah. that coffee mail buckwheat buckwheat coffee mail thing, and it was so good. It was. I, I drank. I still have like two bottles of that left. I drank one of them compared to the bottle of orange blossom uh, coffee mail that I had left over, and it is so much better. It. I mean, it really nails the coffee mail flavor in that sort of thing. Um, so I want to do that again. I want to make like another like two or three gallons of that. And I think I'm going to get like maybe 10 pounds of buckwheat honey and do another two gallons of um, some sort of buckwheat boucher also and see if it has the same sort of thing. But I'm going to source it from the same place that I got the coffee mail buckwheat honey mm -hmm. instead of the other. So speaking of the buckwheat honey, the other reason that we included that here is that we um, – but uh had pasteurized or i pasteurized i, I am fumbling through that topic mm -hmm. i pasteurized the buckwheat honey uh the buckwheat boche because it wasn't the the um the uh honey hadn't fully been yeah it was raw honey yeah but yeah, yeah. but it, it also had not gotten all of the um it wasn't to the the abv tolerance mm. of the and i didn't want it to referment oh, gotcha, at some gotcha. point okay, okay man i had a hard time explaining that okay i know what you mean though. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. You, you pasteurize the final brew to kill the yeast yeah exactly yeah. so i pasteurized it it was a very interesting process mm -hmm. because i didn't pasteurize it in the bottles i pasteurized it in the containers that i had brewed them in so I had okay. three one-gallon jars, okay, one-gallon yeah, yeah. glass one jars. Gallon. Yep. I took a crock pot. You know, I put the mm -hmm. the lids just kind of loosely on so it wouldn't build any pressure or boil yeah. or anything like that. And I let I got the water up to 156, set that down inside on a little stand, mm -hmm. and just let it sit there for like 15 minutes. Took it out, and you know, went to the next one, the next one, yep. the next one, and then I bottled them mm -hmm. after that, like after they cooled off. Uh, so, like, I let it sit for another week. I found that to be much easier than trying to pasteurize, like, doing a, a sealed bottle mm -hmm. or something, like, yeah, after yeah. I'd bottled it. Um, and I didn't worry so much about there being contamination or water that got down in it because mm -hmm. I was able to, uh, you know, kind of still cover it up. Yep. Um, but the steam that might fall back down in it was so little it because it wasn't that, that hot. It wasn't, like, boiling or yeah. anything like that. So, so. And this is not a critique, it's a legitimate question. What made you decide to do, like, to pasteurize it instead of putting in something like potassium sorbate or cadmium or something to kill the yeast? Because I'd only done it in bottles before, and this was the perfect opportunity for me to do it. Gotcha. And if I screwed it up, I, I didn't love the taste of it, so I wouldn't be so Gotcha, hurt. gotcha, gotcha. Okay, yeah. okay. Yeah. That's very valid. Yeah. So, like, I brought that brew with us. I was super excited about just, like, having it, but it you know to self and we all tried it and did it 
but it wasn't like the best thing I've ever done. Mm. Uh, there, there were a couple other ones that I brought to self that were very much popular. better. Yeah. yeah. That banana one was very popular. Oh yeah. <laughs> that, that one was much better. Um, but yeah, so, um, it, it just was a, a thing there. Uh, but pasteurizing is a very valid process for oh, yeah. being able to do Absolutely. a lot of really cool things with your brews. And I had not done it. So I think I might get a, like a pasteurization setup, like mm-hmm. using a cooler and be able to set some bottles down inside of it with hot water mm-hmm. and um, using some some of the techniques that I know how to do, you know, siphon that water in so it's not like a shock to the stuff and everything else like that. Yeah, I mean, I haven't done it, obviously, uh, but I also haven't heard anyone talking about it from this direction. You'd think get yourself like a small little sous vide set up or something and that'd be perfect for it it's that's exactly what i'm talking about doing yeah yeah but so you need something that's got either insulated walls or like is a certain like kind of thing and then you put a bottle that's at the same room temperature and with liquid in the center so that you know when the temperature of the liquid in the bottles that are capped Mm -hmm. get to that that like kind of point where yeah. they're they're pasteurized so like i've seen how to do it i want to do it with a uh like a two gallon um igloo cooler or something yeah, like yeah. that or Absolutely. do it in the cooler but mm-hmm. yeah i, I want to use a sous vide to do it to keep it at the constant temperature yeah that seems like that would work perfect yeah i think it would and everybody that i've seen that does it does it really great and you can get a sous vide for like 100 150 bucks mm-hmm. so and it's multi-purpose right you're like you're not buying something special just for brewing you can use that just for your regular cooking repertoire yeah exactly make steaks all sorts of stuff mm-hmm. like that that i really want to get into sous vide cooking and doing some stuff like that so i think this would be like a fun way to do it and you could i mean i wouldn't have to do it in an igloo cooler so i may not do it and i'm not thinking of one of the rounds round ones i'm thinking yeah, yeah. of like a long mm-hmm one that I could put the sous vide down inside and then, you know, just shut the top and let them do their thing until it gets to the point that I'm like happy. And then, yeah. you know, everything's good. And if it, one of them explodes, don't have to worry about it. Exactly. <laughs> so, um, yeah, we, you know, that'd be a fun experiment for us to do the next time I'm going to like pasteurize something like once mm-hmm. I've gotten it, like maybe I'll sweeten something with honey or sugar and want to carbonate it so we'll bottle it a little early get natural petalants in it mm-hmm. and then you know do the thing and maybe i'll keep them in that container in case one of them explodes like do a small one or two yeah. gallon batch like that yeah well that's an interesting point with the carbonation right because a a warm liquid cannot hold as much carbonation as cold liquid so like when you pasteurize it how much of that carbonation are you going to lose just from it heating up if you're not going to like keep it completely sealed so that would be like... Well, you would keep them sealed. That's how you keep the carbonation from losing. Yeah. So you I, bottle and seal, and mm-hmm. then... And and this is the thing that I've seen people do. So I've never done this before. Okay. But basically, you bottle and sealed. You let them go for whatever your carbonation period is, if you're naturally mm-hmm. carbonating, two, three weeks. And then once you're sure that they're carbonated, or you feel like it's at that point, you put them in the thing, and then you run your pasteurization process... And that kills your yeast. Gotcha. Yeah, yeah. I just earlier when you were talking about, it, you said you were like left the lid slightly ajar. But you're saying for carbonated, you would keep them sealed. You would keep them sealed. And I did that in the um, the brew vessel. The brew vessel yeah. because the brew vessel is not designed to contain that sort of thing. I didn't want it to crack, mm-hmm. so yep, I kept I the you. lid ajar just in case it started boiling or something, which I didn't want it to. 
but it wasn't that bad. And I mean, like for the most part, I could just take a minute out. Yeah, and like with UV, you never have to worry about boiling over because again, you exactly. control it. You just set it to one eighty or whatever yep. the temperature you want. It'll never boil. It'll never do any of that. Do it yeah. for like an hour, and then you're good. Mm-hmm. You know. So let's talk about Tosna three All right. So we've talked about in. Tosna methods before, and Tosna two two 2.5, They're kind of similar. There's just slightly different ratios and a couple of other mm-hmm. like. So someone that's really into the Tosna stuff will tell me, no, it's completely different, and this one is used for this, and this. One. But from a outsider looking in i'm not mm-hmm. i'm just kind of learning about this right now um it's a uh, fermentation nutrient scheduling methodology and there's a couple of different ones but i use this for the candy corn mead mm-hmm. i used it for the blueberry uh, hibiscus uh, mead that i made the melomel and i used it for the buckwheat bochet and all of them came out clear. All of them came out drinkable within a year. Mm-hmm. I mean, this is less than a year old. Yeah. Um, both of these are. And they came out very um, quick fermentations, you know, for the most part. Mm-hmm. There's not like some sort of crazy. Yeah, they're very efficient. Yeah. Um, so and and I feel like the yeast didn't get super stressed, like happens in some of our other brews, some of our new our, our younger brews. It took like four or five months for that stress mm. off flavor to get out of there. So this is just more of me saying if you haven't tried a Tosna calculator, because they I mean basically you just put in what your batch is and then it tells you how many grams or ounces to use of Fermade O, Fermade K, um, when you can put DAP in, stuff like that. Because you're, you're supposed to, this isn't something that I knew. I was just using DAP as my um, my um, uh, nutrient base mm-hmm. the, the whole time. And so when I did other Tosna calculations, I think I was using 2.0. When I was using that, um, I would use DAP the whole time. But you're not supposed to use DAP. Okay. You're supposed to use DAP only at the beginning if you're going to use it, and then you use something like Fermade K or Fermade O towards the end because the diammonium phosphate, the uric acid, mm-hmm. is bad for yeast as they get, yeah. get get further in. So I didn't know all that. Yeah. <laughs> I didn't know all that at first, the gotcha. things you learned. So it sounds like they're probably good for nutrients but bad for reproduction. So you put it in the beginning to kind of help wake everything up, but you don't want it at the end when they're all multiplying. Yeah, the it's something about the release of oxygen and nitrogen balance mm-hmm. that uh, is really good at the beginning, and I don't understand it fully. I didn't do all the research. I just know that people say, you're not supposed to use DAP at the end. And, it, and the little bit of research I did um, in reading on it, you know, led me to understand that it has to do with the NOx with the oxygen nitrogen balance that is created at the beginning i could be wrong about that don't quote me on that but um basically after it gets to a certain point you don't want those things to happen so you want to use more of a like yeast hole you know more other nutrient kind of thing like stuff that you get from plant matter and stuff like Mm -hmm. that you know so that's that's what uh that kind of looks like with the tosna scheduling now we didn't use a Tosna scheduling on the fig wine that we made. Mm-hmm. So we made, so just so we haven't talked about this yet. In the break, Ricky and I got together. He had figs. 
Ricky had wonderful fig children that we sacrificed to the wine gods. And And we had too many. (laughs) Three of the trees in my yard turned out to be fig trees, and there were hundreds. So many. And you froze some because I was like, oh, I know about fig wine, and fig wine is great. So we just decided we were going to do it. Uh, And we started off with using, like, uh, uh, fig butter. Yeah, we used the products of me trying to keep up with three fig trees. Yep. Butter and jam that were, I mean, that's still decent. It's like 20 ounces. Yep. You know, it was a lot. And we still had like three or four pounds of frozen. Yeah. So we used frozen in secondary. Mm-hmm. Um, well, no, it's still technically in primary because we didn't, we, it, even though we racked it to the other thing, we did a, a rough rack where we re-swirled mm-hmm. the, the yeast. So we racked it to a, another vessel, but we put the fig and... Um, everything else in it and we added more honey to make it sweeter so it's like a 13 14 percent you know abv thing i think right now it's like at 12 because mm-hmm. it's um eight through like one point one or uh, 10 points of gravity um and so we're looking at you know a a, a pretty a, a well done uh fig mead here but we didn't use the tazna methodology for it so I intentionally didn't do that because it had so much nutrients in it. I want to see if we needed to use Tazna yeah. for it. Yeah, yeah, I can I can see that because really, you know, we're using pomegranate juice to help bring some darkness to it, and then just a bunch of plant matter. Yeah, I mean it's it's not that dissimilar of like if you were going to make a cider, you use some apple juice, but then just throw like. 20 30 apples in there yeah so you're right and like in theory it should have nutrients for days so like how does that really affect it if you're not already in a high nutrient environment exactly so um we're gonna see how that ends up at at, at the end so far uh it did ferment a little bit more it's probably at the yeast tolerance we think so we we tested that this morning tastes really good a little yeah. young but it's mm-hmm. pretty fantastic i'm looking forward to seeing how that yeah ends that'll up. age really well yeah once we uh once we rack it over i think we should oak it i think that'll be like the next thing to do and uh we could like do a little bit of an experiment since we have two gallons we could divide it up between two one gallon jars yeah, and that's true like do some different things to each side of it so we know exactly what recipe we want next year mm-hmm. when you get more turkey figs yeah <laughs> well i don't eat try and eat a hundred of them in two days to keep up ah oh, man but figs are so good i also was thinking about this uh, since we're doing a brewing episode we have a couple of minutes cantaloupe wine mm-hmm. all right so i i know that people make cantaloupe beers like melon beers yep so I, I was eating a cantaloupe the other day, and I was just kind of thinking about, like, what is this kind of... Could we make a, like, cider wine kind of thing out of cantaloupe or maybe, like, honeydew and cantaloupe mm-hmm. together? That would be really good, I think. Like, something that's kind of like a crisp session mead yep. kind of thing. I could definitely see something like that. Or a session wine kind of thing, you know, lower ABV, but, mm-hmm. like, really intense cantaloupe Yeah, I was flavor. thinking that same thing. You know, it, once you start trying to hit those high ABVs, you're going to be extracting so much sugar, it's probably going to be hard to get that melon across. Yeah. But Although, aim for, like, a 5 or 6%. I mean, I'm using this as an example of this has blueberry flavor, has hibiscus flavor, it's definitely got the spices and the vanilla in there yeah, that I was that, going for. That's also kind of my point. It doesn't taste like you're biting into blueberries and hibiscus. It's got those like essences. Yes. And the essences are nice, but it needs those other spices. Like if that yeah. was just the blueberry, 
that wouldn't taste that great because it's all those other things coming to the plate that make everything stand out. Whereas if you want like a really melon forward something, it's probably like a ton of melon, only let it get to like five, six percent, and then leave a lot more of those natural sugars in, which there already aren't a lot in melon. Yeah. But I think you can get that. I don't know how to describe it other than that sliminess, like that kind of like wetness that comes with the melon. That's yeah. that sweetness. Cause I think that's where the real flavor is. Like, I feel if you took like cantaloupe flavor and put it in like something that wasn't kind of like that, that moistness, mm-hmm. it wouldn't taste as good, you know? Yeah. I, I mean, I don't know that I agree with that, but I can see where you're coming from there. I think, I think what I would probably be looking more for is the slight cantaloupe flavor that you kind of get um, if you were to like do like a cantaloupe puree or something like that. that so okay. an example that, that I'm thinking about is like um, uh, summer squash. Mm-hmm. If you take that and you make a, oh, like a, a stew with it or something like that, um, it's such a wonderful stew, but the flavor it like gives it a thickness. It's kind of like healthier for you, like all this other stuff. Mm-hmm. But then when you when you take the stew in, the flavor of it is it's like this very sweet flavor, and then you get this like hint at the back end of the squash. Yeah, I see what you're saying. Yeah, and so that's kind of what I have in my mind. Okay. For this like wine thing that we're talking about making. Then yeah, here. then I think you're right. If if you're thinking about it in that realm, then kind of how we did the blueberry yeah probably makes the most sense because you really you just want that essence of melon to it yeah and not to necessarily be like really melon forward but i think we could probably do two if we got like i mean we could probably get like two things of cantaloupe you know put one cantaloupe like puree one cantaloupe uh put some pectic enzyme on it do some other things maybe roast the other cantaloupe Mm-hmm. And then take the cantaloupe and maybe take the peel and put it into a tincture, so you get some of the like that like green part that's in the back. So you get some of that because that's got a little bit of bitterness and yeah. everything like that. And then at the end, put that in like secondary mm-hmm. and see how that takes in one, and then see how the other yeah. one, the puree, does in the other. Yeah, the touch on the secondary is a good point. I was thinking, what would happen if you made like just a good base alcohol with mm-hmm. your spices and your other things? And then you put the cantaloupe in it, let that sit for a couple days, puree it out, then filter it. Yeah. So the idea that you're kind of like almost doing the same thing you do with like a tincture. You're just using that alcohol as a solvent to extract all that flavor, really cutting it up fine so it all diffuses, but then taking all that pulp out. Yeah. Yeah. I, uh, kind of thinking the same way mm-hmm. with the, with the uh, puree. I was thinking... You take a puree, you make the puree, and then you put that into a bag, like a yeah. like a nut milk bag, and then you set that down in like a thing of vodka or something. Mm-hmm. Let that extract all of that cantaloupe flavor, or you could even just put it in your brew and see if yeah. the, like the, uh, the that alcohol point, in the brew know, will yep. extract the flavor. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, so that you know something like that, and then that kind of becomes your tincture that versus making a like roasted cantaloupe like kind of thing and and then having like a tincture of your spices and your tannins from the like peel or mm. not it's, it's not the peel it's that green part the part that's almost 
like into the pith yeah of the cantaloupe yeah like you take that and whatever spices you're going to use which probably be like cardamom maybe pepper maybe might even put a little bit of salt into it Mm. you know to to get that kind of like yeah and that would that should work fine because you know that that piece of the rind is very like cucumber-esque exactly so like that's got its own flavors that's i mean it's great for supper cooking i actually have um someone made like watermelon rind pickles that were really good Mm. you know so I, i can definitely see it well, I think that's everything, though, for today. This was an extra long episode. 36 yeah, minutes. We're, ramble- <laughs> we're rambling about the brews now. Sneak yeah, this peek br- into next season. Brew episode major spoilers. Don't listen to this one if you're wanting to keep what's happening next season under wraps. Everyone loved the late spoiler warnings. <laughs> that's, uh, that's what I do. I, I spoil things, and then I'm like, spoilers. Um Yeah, so this has been Season 5, Episode 12 of the Beer and Broadband Podcast. Thank you so much for listening, and we'll catch you next time.